0: This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's
1: IXL.com forward slash B-E. TL Talk Radio Season 3, Episode 10. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 10 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funy-Hetton and Randy Ziganfoos, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziganfoos,
2: And I'm Lynn Funy-Hetton. Good afternoon, Randy. Hey there, Lynn. So we didn't get to see our guest uh, when he was recently in Pennsylvania, but today we get to talk with Grant Lichtman. Grant works with schools to develop their capacity for change in a rapidly changing world. For almost 15 years, Grant was a trustee. Chief of Finance and Operations and Educator at Francis Parker School in San Diego, one of the largest independent schools in the US. And he shared with us uh, before we got started that it's a perfect golf day out there in San Diego, so we might just be a little jealous. Grant's the author of two books, Hashtag Ed Journey, A Roadmap for the Future of Education, based on his firsthand research with dozens of schools and hundreds of K-12 educators, and The Falconer, What We Wish We Had Learned in School, based on a seminar in strategic and creational thinking. Grant blogs at grantlickman.com and has also written for Edutopia, Transcend Education, ISTE, Independent School Magazine, and others.
1: So we are uh, educational leaders that are fascinated by the future and the impact that the future has or will have on education and what we do in schools. And so we're really excited to have this conversation with Grant, so welcome to the show, Grant.
3: Well, thanks so much for having me and I uh, really uh, appreciate uh, all what what you folks do and the fact that we have a, a superintendent and super, assistant superintendent uh, reaching out uh, via podcast to uh, followers all over the country and around the world. Uh, that's just great that's great leadership and I uh, appreciate what you do.
1: Appreciate that feedback.
2: Thank you. Yes, thank you. Very kind.
1: So to start off our conversation today, uh, talking about hashtag Ed Journey, uh, fascinating read, lots of very interesting stories uh, and lots of interesting takeaways, many connections to some of the work that we've been doing as well. So talk to us about the big question behind the book, or I think you might actually have more than one big question.
3: Well, sure. Uh, I, I think there are maybe three big questions that uh, education is facing uh, right now, and has been for the last uh, couple of decades. Uh, the first is why should we be contemplating changing our education system. The second is what's that look like, and what's it going to look like. And the third is uh, how is that going to, how's that transformation going to take place? Uh, to be honest, I feel that the first question, the why that train hopefully has uh, left the station. If people are still asking why we should change education, my question to them is, where have you been for the last uh, 10 or 20 years? Uh, uh, I think the, the the latter of those two, what's it look, what does it look like and how does that take place, are really the the, the big questions that we're facing. And, and #edjourney was really wrapping around the, the what question. What does this look like in schools? Uh, the latter question, the how, maybe we'll get to at the end of this uh, talk, is really the subject of my upcoming book that's coming out uh, later this summer called Moving the Rock, maybe we'll talk about that later. Uh, but really I had a very simple question when I set out uh, in my Prius to drive around the country by myself for, uh, for three months in the fall of 2012 with the permission of my uh, my, my charitable <laughs> wife, who said, okay, go. And the, the big question was, uh, what does innovation look like in schools? I'd heard, and I think we'd all heard people talking about the need for innovation uh, for years, but frankly, I'd never had anybody sort of tell me what that meant. And so I was doing a field study just visit schools, Asked them what uh, they felt was innovative, uh, what they wanted to show me that uh, they felt was aimed toward uh, a better education in the future, uh, and then what were some of their successes they could share and some of the obstacles to those successes. And And those were uh, the questions that were very agnostically asked, and I think that frames the, the content for hashtag ed journey.
1: So the why, the what, and the how. And you mentioned about the why, if we're still having that conversation. Um, but one of the things that I think we see in 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 our roles, uh, you know, public education is pretty highly regulated, and it seems like our policymakers don't even get the why because they're they're still talking about these sort of legacy systems that really don't have a whole lot of meaning, especially when we look at the future. So, should is the is there are there groups like policymakers or others that that still need to get the why and what could we do about that?
3: I think there are there are a lot of policymakers and a lot of uh, uh, people, all stakeholders, who still uh, need to get the why, and that actually is the thesis and the subject of my of my new book that's coming out uh, in August. And I may I'll just jump ahead, maybe we can talk about it a little bit more sure. later. I'll show you what the thesis of that book is. Uh, that education has been largely stuck in a traditional sort of rigid model that's uh, uh, much more attuned to the industrial age than the information or post-information age, and that there are a number of forces that have kept education stuck, and we can count within that uh, policymakers, uh, government policymakers, uh, the political left and right, uh, many groups of adult uh, stakeholders that are self-interested in preserving the status quo, uh, the publishing oligarchy, et cetera, on and on. And people have their their various sort of whipping posts they like to point fingers at. And the thesis I had was is that you know what what if there were some what I call levers that were capable of moving that rock? What if we could move that uh, education which has this tremendous inertia by applying some forces that don't require permission or. Empowerment from the forces that have kept uh, the inertia uh, and the rock uh, inertial uh, for so many years in the first place, and so that's really the subject uh, when I, I talk about 80 thought leaders, uh, educators from all over the country, and synthesize what I think are seven, uh, you know, r- real levers that, and the the key word here is that we, uh, we is capitalized in the subtitle of the book, seven levers uh, we can press to transform education that don't require a permission or empowerment uh, from those forces that have created the inertia in the first place.
2: Wow, that sounds uh, exciting because we are often talking about the the how and um, the barriers that we have or perceived barriers. As one of our other guests sort of uh, corrected us on, like you know these these are not really barriers; these are perceived barriers, and you're in a system that. Um, that we have been in the same system for 22 years, and you know how do we navigate some of those? So I would be really interested in hearing what some of those seven levers are that don't require permission. Um, so maybe we can talk about that later or okay. in the future on Definitely. another podcast. Sure. So let's go back to the idea of of the future, and you know even since you've written your book, have have your ideas about the future changed since you published your book?
3: Well, uh, I I don't know that they've changed. They've probably amplified and accelerated, uh, if anything. Uh, You mentioned when we were uh, communicating before this podcast this idea of the exponential curve, and we're all familiar with this sort of upwardly swooping uh, exponential curve that describes so many things. And uh, here's here's a great example that I use now that I'm talking when I'm talking with groups of educators. Think for a minute about uh, seniors who are graduating high school this year in 2017, when those seniors were in maybe first or second or third grades, call it 10 years ago, uh, one of the learning goals that we would have had for at least some of those uh, uh, primary school kids would have been to teach them uh, digital keyboarding. Uh, We would take it down to the computer lab and the goal there with technology was rather than learning how to type on a manual typewriter when you're in 10th or 11th grade, we're going to teach digital keyboarding. Well, flash forward now 10 years and those second and third graders now, uh, we are asking them to program a sophisticated industrial quality 3D printer to create and design and print a prosthetic hand in some cases. And so in 10 years, we've gone through... You know, how many different stages of evolution of, of technology that have gone from keyboarding to, to creating and printing a, a prosthetic hand. Uh, and we've asked teachers to keep up with all that. Mm-hmm. So that sort of describes the, the arc of exponential change. Uh, the, every indication is, is that curve continues to steepen, and it's not only related to technology. Another example I think we can point to, uh, which has come, come on us incredibly quickly on that curve, is the question of literacy. Uh, A year ago, when we were talking about digital literacy and literacy, you know, mostly about students uh, using social media and that sort of thing. Over the last year, with the, you know, incredible rise of what we... I think are now calling fake media and fake news and, and all that from, from across the political and uh, social spectrum, uh, all, there's been an explosion of discussion about uh, where that belongs in our school and what does it mean to actually be literate in the future. So that sort of describes this curve. And, and, uh, and I'll tell you, the best summary that I've found uh, of this argument uh, is in Tom Friedman's new book, uh, Thank You for Being Late, where he describes his conversations with Eric Teller uh, CEO, or I guess executive director of Google X, and Teller puts it this way, he, he, he says, okay, we've got this one curve, this, this exponential curve of change, but there's another curve, it's a much flatter curve, and maybe even, uh, it, it's, it's maybe more linear in its function, but it's flatter. And this is the curve that describes uh, the ability of humans, uh, human individuals and organizations to actually adapt to change. And these two curves have crossed. In the past, very simply, uh, significant changes in transportation, economics, communication, technology, et cetera, have really taken years or decades or more decades and centuries to evolve. Now those changes are taking months and years. Mm -hmm. Essentially what Teller says is uh, our ability as human individuals and institutions uh, we uh, the, the rate of change that has exceeded our ability to adapt to those changes, and that relationship is never going to reverse, and the major re- responsibility for preparing ourselves and our future generations to deal with that circumstance is up to educators. Mm-hmm. So That's a lot to chew on, uh, but that really, I think, distills down the rate of change. Uh, uh, idea, and if anybody can look at that and still say why should schools change, then they just are not willing to e- engage in thoughtful discussion.
1: You mentioned this idea that education is uh, largely going to play a big role in in helping people to adapt to that change. And one of the things that we focus on in this podcast is this idea of leadership. And uh, you know, we we are curious about leadership and wonder like are, are, are leaders prepared to lead in this way? And, and sometimes I guess I'll just be blunt connecting to one of the words in your books, this idea of roadblocks, like is leadership a roadblock? I, I hear stories of teacher friends and other districts talking about things they're trying to do. And, and my head goes towards, you know, that's a leadership problem. That's a leadership problem. The leadership's the roadblock. So you know talk to us about this idea of leadership as a roadblock to innovation
3: well <clears throat> let's not talk about it just as a roadblock let's talk about it as the as a potential roadblock but also one of the most potentially uh strong levers and opportunities as well uh there's a graphic that i've published uh, if, if your listeners, I think, if they Google uh, "stairway of successful school innovation" and, and my last name, they'll get this graphic, which is uh, it follows on and, and is evolved and adapted from earlier versions of management thinking going back into the '80s. And it essentially describes a a number of elements in any organization, and I adapted to schools earlier really required for you to successfully innovate and. Most of those, I think we can say, are not terribly linear. And in other words, there's not one that has to follow after the, the, the one before it. But uh, leadership is is the different one. If you do not have leadership in an organization that's committed to innovation and change, it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so that's where both the opportunity and the roadblock comes. So a couple of things that really have, I think, been distilled out of, out of my work that I recognize with respect to leadership. Uh, the first is that... Uh, We know uh, that uh, one of the uh, probably two most important elements that have to be in place for innovation to take change in an organization are a willingness and ability to take risks. And it's I think it's very apparent that uh, if uh, leadership, risk-taking, modeling of risk-taking has to come from the top down. If I am a principal and my superintendent is not showing a willingness to take a risk him or herself, I'm not going to do it. If I'm a teacher and my principal is not modeling risk taking, I'm not going to be willing to do it right down to the student level. So that willingness to model and take risks is, is incredibly important. I think there's, another, there's an element of uh, training uh, leaders uh, in uh, innovation change management. It's actually one of the levers uh, that I write about in Moving the Rock coming out in August. Uh, our titular, positional leaders in most schools uh, do not have access to, uh, ready access to, nor have they, many of them avail themselves of leadership training, uh, the skills of management and leadership training. Uh, they're different than the skills of being a great English teacher and a great vice principal and all those sorts of things. And so uh, we have to have a, a much better structure for providing what we already know works to, uh, to educators so that they can use those tools. Uh, And I guess the the last thing I'd say is that a real threat to all of this is the the remarkable turnover in leadership. Uh, When, if, if that thesis is correct that, you know, leaders have to demonstrate uh, that they're serious and they want to be sustainable about leading change and innovation. Uh, But superintendents are coming and going every three, four or five years Then everybody below them doesn't actually really have a stake or a belief or a trust that this is something that they they really do need to get on board with. Uh, So that's a real problem, I think. and And that's present in both public and private schools uh, in in a big way. I've actually done some mathematical modeling about that, which I won't get into now, but it's remarkable uh, when you actually calculate how difficult it is to find large blocks of time, sustainable time where leadership is is in place and you can uh, get these processes working sustainably over a period of three, four, five, seven years.
2: I was looking around for that uh, graphic that you mentioned, and we will share that in our show notes so that um, our listeners can take a look and see because that I only had a minute to glance at it, but that does look like there's a lot of meat to that. And well, and just
3: to not that. scare people, it, when you first look at it, it looks like there's a lot of meat. The great news is, is that most schools are really strong in a lot of those steps. And and what I try to do when I get together with uh, schools and districts to work with them is let's identify where your strengths are on that stairway and then uh, where your weaknesses are and let's address the weaknesses. But the good news is that uh, a, a lot of uh, schools and districts have real strength in terms of uh, leadership and setting a vision and uh, 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 having resources available or uh, creating a sustainable commitment.
2: Sure, and it can almost um, serve as a, a quick conversation starter or self-assessment um, for a school so we'll definitely take a look at that that's, thank you for sharing that yeah, yeah. yeah so in the second part of your book you focus on the question what does transformative learning look like and Randy and I have been having a lot of questions with people like yourself um, who are working on in and learning about transforming learning environment environments and um, this idea of empathy has emerged very strong in terms of Developing relationships and connecting, and the work is shared, um, and and many other factors that our, our guests have shared with us. What did you learn about the importance of not only providing opportunities to, for learners to develop empathy, but but also for the educators as well?
3: Well, I heard the word a lot, and I can. And I think we all continue to hear the word a lot, and so and so. Let's uh, let's just stipulate that it is uppermost in people's minds, and and I think that again. Uh, events, both nationally and internationally, over the last couple of years, uh, I think, have driven home the point that uh, many of our societies are becoming uh, more divisive and less unified in a lot of ways. And whilst we don't always have to agree with each other, uh, the skills of empathy, of understanding each other, and at least getting to the point of of discourse, uh, civil discourse, is uh, something that could be very, very important in all of our futures. I think people struggle with empathy uh, for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is uh, maybe it's hard to quantify. And those schools that are uh, subject or find themselves subject to, still subject, unfortunately, to a very uh, test-prone assessment environment uh, may struggle over that. Uh, How do I incorporate empathy in my classroom uh, in a way that can be measured and evaluated uh, per how I'm being evaluated as as a teacher. I think people struggle with that. I think one of the real bright spots in empathy is the explosive rise in understanding and use of uh, what people call design thinking. uh, when I was uh, fortunate to sit down one point a couple of, well, a few years ago now with uh, David Kelly, who's the founder of the Stanford D School, uh, founder of IDEO, and really, I think, generally considered to be the, the one who came up with the term design thinking. And I said, David, isn't design thinking just uh, great problem solving using lots of post-it notes? And we both had a good laugh about that. And he essentially agreed, yes, there's nothing magical about design <laughs> thinking. But one of the elements that's so key is, is that it requires us to uh, engage in an empathetic understanding of our users. And in education, those are our students and our teachers and our parents and a broader community. Uh, And rather than solving problems from our own point of view, it requires us to start off with an empathetic understanding of the other. Uh, and that's where we find a lot better solutions than just jumping to solutions straight away. So that's a bright spot I see there. But I, but I think I think I think people are still very much struggling with how to really build uh, empathy, which is so important uh, into the uh, the daily education routine.
1: So I connect that to our work and conversations around this idea of moving towards more learner centered, moving away from school centered. Uh, education towards more learner centered. And in order to do that, you have to look at things from the learner perspective. You have to empathize with them. You have to have conversations with them and, and also reflect upon your own learning too, as an adult. And what we've learned is that that requires time. It's, it's a shift in mindset and it requires people to really have conversations around this stuff. And as leaders, we find that one of our big responsibilities is being able to provide the, the space and the time for people to wrap their heads around this shift in mindset. Um, and that connects to something later on in your book where you talk about uh, zero-based strategic thinking and how this can be a good foundation for building innovation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah,
3: that, that term, zero-based strategic thinking, came out of a workshop, and I, I liked it for a while. It's, I'm, I'm using different terminology now. I've started to talk about uh, strategic design instead, and but it goes back to what you were saying a minute ago, uh, Randy, uh, and I quote my very good friend, uh, Bo Adams, and Bo is somebody you should absolutely have on this podcast, uh, one of the great uh, thought education leaders we have in the country. Maybe you already have. I can't remember.
1: No, we haven't, but somebody else... Told us, mentioned his name. Yeah, too. yeah we'll have to connect.
2: Yeah,
3: Bo says, "Look, really simply, at kind of the at the thirty thousand foot level, the transformation we're going through right now is is that for decades schools have been essentially viewed as teaching organizations, and we are transforming to become learning organizations, and that is a fundamental shift. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there's one sort of thing that I ask superintendents and principals and you know, everybody to really chew on is." Chew on what that means, the shift from being a teaching organization to a learning organization. It really calls into question many of the fundamental precepts of our, what I call our school operating system. Uh, And uh, one of those uh, precepts is how do we go about uh, designing the future? How do we go about creating this future? This is, again, now we're really into the meat of the how. I think that... uh, again, from my point of view, the why has essentially been answered. The what is largely being answered. If people want to know what I think transformed learning environments look like, they should just Google deeper learning, uh, and they'll get an explosion of resources uh, about deeper learning. And I've actually, on my website, uh, under my resources page, I, I, I have something called the deep learning cheat sheet, which is sort of a, a really bootstrapped uh, uh, metacognitive list that I put together quickly of what 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 are the elements of deeper learning, and people will see how that you know mm-hmm. resonates either with what they do or don't do in their school. But from a from a strategic point of view, from a point of view of, of figuring out where we're going to be going during a time when change is happening probably faster than we can accommodate it, this idea of building the plane while it's in flight. Um, I think we really have to make this fundamental shift from a strategic uh, pathway that largely in the past has revolved around sort of five-year strategic plans where a representative committee of stakeholders gets together for a weekend or a few sessions during the year and stakeholders are essentially saying well I got remember I've got to really make sure I get my uh, constituencies into the strategic plan and then this whole thing gets homogenized down and all the strategic plans end up looking pretty much exactly the same I call called their, their vanilla or vanilla plus are two you know results of those plans We really have to shift to a very different approach And the words that I use to describe this different approach are these. First, uh, it's expansive. We start with uh, a very expanded set of horizons, blue sky thinking, uh, because in a time of rapid change, the stuff that's going to be happening in the next 20 years, and again, this is an element of my new book about what's inevitable about education in the next 20 years, most people aren't even contemplating that today. Even some of the really forward-looking schools and leaders today are not contemplating the magnitude of change. So we have to be remarkably expansive in our thinking before we start sort of winnowing down where we're gonna go. I use the word inclusive. Uh, The idea that a committee of 10 or 12 people should get together to unwrap, uh, you know, where we're gonna be going, it completely flies in the face of what we call this good distributed leadership, where we expect many, many people to lead from wherever they are. And so the the, the strategic design uh, events that I work with, everybody's there, uh, teachers and, and parents and students and, uh, and the administrators, and, and this is a very fast fruit. Free- now, eventually, of course, there has to be a smaller group that distills that, but we start off being very inclusive. The process should be incredibly transparent uh, so that people see that where we're going is where we want to go. It's not being handed down by the mommy or daddy of a board or, or a superintendent or a principal uh and then the process really is ongoing and this is where i think your question started randy Uh, there is no start and stop to strategic thinking or strategic design uh this is a process that needs to be ongoing uh another great image that came out of and i apologize i can't cite the author right now uh, i should have should be able to uh they talked about uh it was i think it was in a harvard business review journal they talked about moving from a, a, an organizational system where we uh, are frozen in place, and then we are told to unfreeze and refreeze somewhere else, because this is now the exact right way to do it, uh, to, to to becoming comfortable with living in a condition of permanent slush. Uh, and that's just the way the world is. We have to be comfortable with this process of innovation and change being ongoing and uh, uh, and sustainably ongoing. And the last word I use is it's messy. It's messier than saying, okay, we did our strategic plan. We're set for the next five years, put it on the shelf, and let's, you know, now we'll get back to the classroom. It's just (laughs) not the way the world works now. Uh, Most other successful organizations outside of education uh, are are working more in the modality that I'm talking about rather than in the sort of traditional stolid, rigid, uh, five-year strategic planning sort of model
2: so i found the document that you were talking about about deeper learning cheat sheet and linked it uh, for our listeners and i'm looking at it and thinking about how well it connects to our learning beliefs Um, last year randy and i engaged in a visioning process where we we didn't do the traditional 12 people we um, went out and met with students and did some user experiences with students and had some open nights and uh, for parents and community members and teachers. And I mean, we even hung chart paper in the walls in the faculty room asking <laughs> asking teachers some questions to try to get some more voice. And and we we identified what we want to see in our students in a profile of a graduate. And then we also identified some learning beliefs based on education reimagines work. And I'm looking at this document and this document is really um, a very clear how to meet some of those, those um, how to implement some some strategies that help us work towards the learning beliefs. Um, This idea of curiosity and and, um, valuing and teaching skepticism for students, Um, also looking at some of the the ideas that we are looking for in terms of being globally um, connected and having learning be socially embedded um, you have some ideas about students working working collaboratively, and and most importantly, the idea about agency. And you've listed some things there about building a student-centered classroom. Um, and some of your ideas, including giving giving students the air time and helping students be responsible for their learning and um, making them feel part of a, a, a whole team. So this is a, a great find. Thank you for sharing. It's definitely well. So and and
3: let me let me make sure I I give proper credit. Those are not my ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I, I essentially did kind of a, a trawl through Edutopia, which hopefully all of your listeners uh, know that Edutopia is probably the best resource out there for just about anything that's uh, that's uh, forward-looking. Uh, and I just put together kind of a meta list of what a lot of folks have been talking about. And But here's what's important. I and others have gone through a very similar exercise, like you just described, of asking people, you know, kind of what does great learning look like? And... Lynn and Randy, at an 80% level, I find community stakeholders from every school from the most uh, highly resourced, uh, privileged independence, East Coast independent school to the most underserved schools I've visited, the stakeholders at an 80% level all say the same thing. And so that's why the what of the what of educational transformation I think is largely being or been answered. There's not mm-hmm. a lot of dissonance about mm-hmm. what we think great money looks like and that's why I really want folks to focus on the how let's get pat the why question that train left the station a long time ago and with all due respect and i say this in my new book every time i hear somebody say oh i just watched this great uh, ted talk by ken robinson and now thinking, <laughs> my head explodes right because god bless ken robinson but you know he was saying that same stuff 15 20 years ago and, and why, why does that move anybody so i do think it what, what's interesting is, is that community stakeholders almost everywhere come up to the same sort of d- derivative list. And that, that cheat sheet I put together is a way for uh, teachers, when I work with a school or a district, I say, well, let's just go through these and let's design something. That, take one or two of those. Don't try to take them all. Mm-hmm. Take one or two that you're interested in as a teacher, that you're passionate about, that you'd like to do better in your classroom. And let design a bit of curriculum or a program or a class session, whatever it is that where you can amplify that next year. And if we, and if we all did that, boom, all of a sudden, we're mm-hmm. shifting the, the culture of the school.
2: Yeah, it's going to, we'll definitely share it with our teachers as a um, we're really focusing on systemic change this year and we have building leadership teams working together um, to identify ways we can move towards uh, implementing those learning beliefs. So this will be a nice resource. Thanks for sharing. Good.
1: So in your, in your hashtag ed journey book, you were obviously, like you said, you got in your Prius and you ran went around. I think you said you interviewed something like 600 teachers and educators and I don't know how many hundred schools. Uh, so what, what was your most fond memory? What was your uh, greatest story, uh, from, from all that journey?
3: Yeah. I don't know if fond memories and greatest stories are the same thing or not. (laughs) Uh, Randy, uh, you know, probably the story I tell the most, which I won't tell now, is the day four, four days into a 90-day into a journey when all the lights on my previous dashboard came on at the same time in a rainstorm <laughs> on the plains of West Kansas, but I won't go into that one. <laughs> I think probably the, oh, maybe the signature moment, uh, and I talk about it in the book, was uh, at Mount Vernon Presbyterian <laughs> School in Atlanta, it happens to be where Bo Adams uh, is, and uh I was, uh, they, I was visiting with teachers and students and uh, I was in a class, it was just a room uh, in their elementary school that they'd converted from a traditional classroom to at that point sort of their innovation spaces, classroom that they could use for, this was as they were just sort of had an incipient maker space design kind of program starting there, a pilot. And they invited a little... Uh, second-grade boy and to talk to me and so we're sitting on those little tiny bitty chairs that you know Elementary school kids sit on and I'm six foot four. So my knees somewhere up around my chin and uh, Then I just asked this boy, you know What is it that you do when you come to this room? That's different than what you do in your other classroom and he sort of screwed up his face for a second looked at me and thought for a second. He says well very very Pensively and uh, very adult expression of his face as well we uh, we come in here and we uh, we design and and we iterate and we build and uh, we, we fail forward and we fail fast <laughs> uh, and he then he pre- showed me a couple of examples of, of what he meant of things that they'd done there and I just you know my thought right there was okay that that boy is never gonna be going back into the box of the traditional rigid education system. He has the tools, he's being uh, provided the tools and he's being provided uh, the liberty and the freedom to to use those. And I I just thought, you know, that was a great, it was a great moment where, you know, you just smile and you say, okay, we are are gonna win this battle over time.
1: (laughs) And that story I think also shows that regardless of age, the abilities are there if we give them the space to demonstrate. Uh, their well, at and, and
3: and and if we could just manage to not take it away from the young kids, mm-hmm. the real problems come when uh, a high school calls me and says, "Grant, can you come in and work with us because you know we want to transform and we." get the whole deeper learning thing and blah, blah, blah. And but they're trying to take kids who've been essentially put through this rigid industrial age assembly line for, you know, from age five to age fourteen or something. And suddenly we want to snap our fingers and have these kids take over, become very student centered learners and and all of that. And and they just don't know how. They don't have the skill set. And that, that's where the really tough work is.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
1: a lot of unlearning than that we're it's expecting a lot of from learning. them. Exactly. Yeah.
2: So you talked about your upcoming book. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share about that book at this time? Sort of what's well, again,
3: I think the, uh, I think it's, this is all about, uh, not only how, the how, and in this book, I'm not talking as much about, uh, how to change one particular school. I think that's what I was really talking about in Hashtag Ed Journey. Hopefully, uh, what people get out of Hashtag Ed Journey is a glimpse into that deeper learning element, but then it also some really specific, uh, ideas for, how we can change our school. Uh, With Moving the Rock, I was really looking at education writ much larger, education at scale. Uh, And I'm not naive enough to believe that we can change every school and every system for every child in the next 10 years or something. But as I was uh, interviewing, again, people from all over the country wearing a lot of different hats there did evolve this group of seven what I call levers that not only clearly uh, are capable of of having major impact on transforming uh, schools and districts at a system level and at scale, but they're already mostly happening in different parts of the country successfully already, and in some cases, have been for over a decade. And so these are are proven uh, uh, projects, pilots, programs, techniques, strategies uh, that are transforming schools to this deeper learning model. They're happening today, the examples are out there, and I don't, and and they're examples, again, right across the spectrum of, of geography, economics, demographics, et cetera. With perhaps the exception of, you know, some schools that are really deeply rooted in in, in systems of, of true poverty, uh, I don't have I don't have I don't have an answer for poverty. Uh, so that's that's what the book is about. And, and uh, so you know, you asked for examples earlier. So for example. Uh, one we talked about was pro- of much better access of leadership training in innovation and change management to our educators. Uh, one that is uh, I spoke a-, a lot about in Pennsylvania uh, uh, highlighted the remake learning uh, system in Pittsburgh uh, where schools have really broken down those boundaries between quote unquote school and world where students are much more learning in the community and with community resources And there. Are, I could have written an entire book uh, just about uh, that. Uh, there's a chapter on the high school assessment transcript and college admissions and some cracks we're starting to see in this dam of colleges uh, selecting students largely based on SAT scores and, and grade point averages and, and some, uh, some, some things that are happening in that regard. So there are a number of these that I think we see uh, uh, great evidence uh, today of schools just like yours and just like those of your listeners where this transformation is taking place and these do not require uh, additional resources for the most part. They don't require permission or empowerment from the State Department of Education or the national education system or the publishers or the politicians. Uh, these are the things that we, the community stakeholders, can do because, frankly, we want to do them and we're able to do them.
2: Mm-hmm. So that sounds like something that will really help us move forward in our work as well i like, i see it's not available for pre-sale yet or i imagine randy probably would have already ordered
3: it i actually uh you know what i think you actually can pre-order it you might get, check it's like this week i think those are we're getting the artwork up on amazon and everything. Yeah, it's
2: not here i'm looking at it right now so coming soon
3: it's coming soon so i think it'll be available for pre-order within the next few weeks it's scheduled to ship uh, right at the end of August. And we'll be getting a lot more, uh, media out on that, uh, uh, about the launch probably by about the end of May.
2: Sounds great.
1: Excellent. Yeah. It sounds like, um, you're really touching a lot of our pain points, the, the sort of, uh, things that we can use to really move, move this, uh, work forward, things that we're now seeing as like our barriers or our, our pain points. So it sounds like, uh, some good thinking and, uh, looks like a good read, I'm sure. Well, we'll again, it's just, you
3: know, I'm, I'm just, I'm the reporter here. Mm -hmm. I'm the synthesizer (laughs) uh, for both of those books. Uh, These are not my stories. Uh, These are the stories of the, I'm the lucky guy that, is not tied to a day job any longer. I'm able to spend my time out there in the field, out there listening and working and talking with and working with educators and community stakeholders. And so these books really are just uh, highlights into what I'm able to access and try to to translate and connect those on to others just as you're doing with your
2: podcasts. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Grant. Uh, We appreciate the time that you spent with us and certainly we've learned a lot for our personal context and hope our listeners have learned as well.
3: Well, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, maybe after the new book comes out and we have some more uh, water under the bridge, you'll you'll have me back and we'll see where, see where we're going in a
1: year or so from now. We would love to do that. Definitely. We're going
2: we're gonna to hold you to it. Thanks a lot. <laughs> to learn more about Grant's work, um, visit some of the links in the show notes. His website and blog is there. You can follow him at Grant Lickman. Um, also a TEDx, some links to the books, and the resources that Grant mentioned in the podcast area of a successful innovation, and the deeper learning cheat sheet. Each episode, we leave you with a couple of questions to think about with the idea of provoking conversation. This episode's questions, number one, what's the greatest barrier to change in your learning context, and how might you go about moving on that change? And number two, how are you making the time for strategic thinking conversations in your school or district? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find out more about the resources and links we shared in this episode, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season three, episode 10.
1: That's it for now. We'll see you next episode for a conversation with another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Grant. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Lynn.